Amos is uh, one of those uh, longer of the minor prophets, these nine chapters, and a lot to cover this morning, but I'm going to try to do that by way of touching the themes of the book and uh, helping us to get a handle on what he's uh, been saying. For those of you that are just joining us today, we began about five weeks ago now a study in the minor prophets. There are 12 of them at the very end of the Old Testament. They all uh, have a brief message, more or less, uh, compared to Isaiah and Jeremiah, for example, but a very important message to the nations that they prophesied to. And to give you a, a little bit of a handle on where Amos occurs, um, again, I'm going to say this so many times, you're all going to know it by rote. You're probably going to be tired of it by the time we get done. But... Uh, remember, the kingdom was divided. The, the nation of Israel, after being in the promised land for uh, some 500 years or so, um, after the death of Solomon, became divided. The northern kingdom kind of pulled away from God. They certainly pulled away from Jerusalem and from their southern brothers, Judah. And uh, the southern kingdom kind of consolidated itself down there in the south. And so we're in that period of time when there's two different countries under the banner of Israel. And in that uh, sense, the northern kingdom that is called Israel, the ten tribes, are the less godly, less repentant, less spiritual of the two. There were revival periods in Judah, but never really a massive turning to God in Israel. And during this period of time, God sent His prophets to speak with a message. When I was in uh, Tekoa Falls College preparing myself for pastoral ministry, um, we liked Amos because he was the sheep herder from Tekoa. Actually, uh, I think in Hebrew the name would be pronounced Tekoa, but it was kind of nice for us to say Amos was the prophet from Tekoa. And notice that he says the words of Amos, chapter 1, verse 1, who is among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which envisioned envisions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. We don't have any trouble stating when Amos prophesied. It was two years before the earthquake. Uzziah was on the throne in the south, and Jeroboam II was on the throne in the north. The only problem is we don't know exactly when that earthquake occurred. So, so we know who was king, and we know what was going on, but we don't understand exactly when the earthquake was. But one of the peculiarities of the way this book opens is, it says two years before the earthquake. And you say, wait a minute, he's prophesying, how does he know about the earthquake? Well, chances are he wrote this down after the earthquake. But he prophesied before the earthquake, and in fact, he prophesied the earthquake. If you'll turn over in your Bibles um, to uh, Amos 8, verse 8, and just look at that for a moment. In Amos 8, 8, God is bringing His judgments against Israel in the prophetic word. And in that prophecy of Amos 8, 8, He says, Because of this will not the land quake, and everyone who dwells in it mourn, indeed all of it will rise up like the Nile and be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. So can you get the picture there? The river swelling and then going back down and the waves on the river. Uh, he says the land is going to do that. And it's going to shake everybody up. And in Zechariah, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it for you. In Zechariah uh, chapter 14... Zechariah happens to be prophesying about the end times, but he gives a comparison and he says, And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach up to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So this earthquake was documented and we heard... Uh, 
last week about the earthquake in northern Pakistan and how that uh, turbulent area and things and the flooding, I guess it's the flooding right now, but earthquakes in other parts, and the terror that it strikes on the people and the devastation and the catastrophes that it causes. Amos had apparently prophesied about this earthquake. And you know the test of an Old Testament prophet? If they spoke the truth, their words would come true, and you could verify their prophecy. If their words didn't come true, then you knew they were lying. Well, the problem in some cases is you didn't know when their words were going to come true. They said certain things, but there was an unknown time factor in there. And um, Amos was not a a well-received prophet. He was not liked. In fact, if you'll, if you'll turn with me to uh, Amos 7, verse 10, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, that's Amos 7:10, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all of his words. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. So you get the picture, Amos has gone up to Bethel. And if you look at a map, he went north into the northern kingdom. He went to Bethel, which was a significant place. It was a sanctuary for the king. Uh, Amaziah was a priest who was ministering in that area. And Amos is prophesying. And this priest does not like what he's hearing. And then Amos says, Jeroboam is going to die and Israel is going to go into exile. And so he sends word to the king and he says, this guy is prophesying your downfall. This guy is saying that Israel is going to go into exile. We don't want him here. And so he goes to Amos and he says in verse 12, Go, you seer, and flee away to the land of Judah and there eat bread and there do your prophesying. But no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. In other words, get out of here. Go home. Live in the south. Keep your mouth shut. Go tell them stuff. We don't want to hear what you've got to say. And Amos has a very interesting response. If you look at verse 14, Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people in Israel. Now, you get the picture? One Hebrew scholar has sort of interpreted uh, the, the wording here to say, I didn't ask to be a prophet. I'm not even related to any prophets. I don't have anything to do with the prophets. I was a sheep herder. I was minding my own business. I was doing what I like to do. I was taking care of the flock. And God said, Amos, leave the flock and go give this message to the northern kingdom. In other words, he was saying to Amaziah, do you think I'm here because I want to be? (laughs) Do you think I'm standing in the courtyard of the temple, the, the, the worship place in Bethel? Do you think I'm standing there telling these unpopular words because it's fun? This is the last thing I wanted to do. I was minding my own business following the sheep. When God called me and said, you've got to go talk to them, and you've got to go give them the message. So Amos is not a trained prophet. He didn't go to seminary. He's not a, a, a Greek and Hebrew scholar, you know. He doesn't have that background, but he has the Word of God. And God uproots him and sends him to the north to give this message that is not very popular. And Amos says, I'm not doing this because I chose to do it. I'm doing it because God has sent me. I want to make my first application this morning before we go on. Don't get too comfortable. Don't think just because you're a certain age and you've got a career and you're happy in life and everything is settled down and it's all kind of going the way you'd hoped it would, that God is going to leave you alone and never ask you to change everything up and go do something special for Him. God can call whom He wants at any time He wants. And He can give them a message 
that He wants them to share and change your life. And, and on the one hand, I have to tell you, there will be no greater blessing than to, to have God uproot you and move you around like that. Uh, and, and on the other hand, there's, there, it's pretty surprising. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> but this is what I want you to do. And that was, what, that was Amos's background. And we need to recognize that while I am not going to devalue education and training and development and all of that, because it's very important to study the Scriptures, however you do that. But you don't have to go to a Christian college or a Bible college or a seminary to be a spokesperson for God. You have to have His anointing and His message. Everyone should be a student of the Scripture. What is the Awana verse? Study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of righteousness. That's probably not the version you quoted from, is it? But, but that's the message. We all have that responsibility to be students of Scripture. You don't have to have a degree hanging on your wall to be used by God. So be available to Him. And open, because he may just pluck you up from following the sheep one day and say, go to the northern kingdom and stand on the steps of the uh, courthouse there and preach this message. And so that was the background of Amos. Now, I want to remind you of the economy of Israel, because this is, this is, it's important to get the message of Amos. It's important to understand the economy. What do I mean by that? Jeroboam II, who reigned about 40 years, was a very brilliant fellow. He did a lot of good things from a worldly perspective. He expanded the kingdom. He took back some territories that they'd been squabbling over with their neighbors. Uh, he brought a prosperity to the kingdom where they were in economic good times. It was an opportunity to make a good living, even to get rich. It was an opportunity in the north when, when they were kind of running their own game and things were going well for them. And Amos comes with a message that strikes at the root of their heart issues with God in the midst of all of this. We need to, I think, see some of the parallels between what was going on in Israel at the time and what has been going on in the United States because there are some specific parallels along the lines that I think we should pay attention to. The other thing that we learn as we turn to the book of Amos and we open in this first chapter is that Amos' message was not simply a message to Israel, but it included other nations. In fact, the whole first chapter are prophecies against neighboring nations, the countries surrounding Israel, including Judah, his own home country in the south. He kind of starts and he talks about what God has against these neighboring nations. And you might say, why is Amos doing this in Bethel, in Israel? These other nations don't get a chance to hear him. I mean, he's talking uh, about uh, Damascus and Ammon and Moab. He's talking about Gaza and Tyre and Edom. And they're not listening. He's not even talking in their country. There was no television. They couldn't put him on C-SPAN International or something like that. So he's up there in Bethel preaching about these countries. But it brings home to us and it underscores what God is trying to say to Israel. I am the God of all the nations and I see what's going on in every country and I am keeping the record. And in all of those other cases, God pronounces judgment on the surrounding nations for some of their national sins. I want to just stop here and say parenthetically that I think it's important for us to separate national sins from personal sins. And to realize that we may be followers of Jesus Christ, and still suffer within our nation because of national sin. Do you know what I'm saying by that? If God does bring judgment, let me ask you this simple... I, I, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. 
But if the 9-11 attacks were the judgment of God, if they were, do you think there were born-again committed Christians in that mayhem on that day? Of course there were. If what happened in Louisiana with the hurricane was God's judgment, if it was, do you think there were born-again Christians who suffered? I know of our own sister congregations, gospel-preaching evangelical churches that were destroyed by the floods and the hurricane. Does it mean that you're automatically exempt from any kind of calamity because you're a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ? It does not. And so we need, to, we need to understand in our minds that God deals with nations and He deals with people. And you can be walking uprightly with God. And, and then you might say to me, okay, so let me see if I get the picture here. God decides to judge some city I'm in, and a tornado comes, and the building I'm in collapses around me. How is that taking care of me? And my answer to you is, Jesus Christ said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always be with you. I will meet your every need. I will give you strength in every trial. And to be a follower of Jesus Christ with the confidence of life eternal and knowing that within moments you're going to open your eyes and see Him face to face and have the encouragement of His presence while the walls cave in around you is the greatest position you can be in as a human being in a time of disaster is to be connected to God and close to Him through Jesus Christ. We have a tendency to think that because we're Christians, we're going to live charmed lives and nothing is ever going to touch us. And nothing could be further from the truth. We are here to be salt and light in a fallen world regardless of what is going on around us, regardless of the economy, regardless of the natural disaster, regardless of the illness. We are called to be salt and light wherever we are, reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ and bringing His light into dark places. And that may be scenes of catastrophe. It may be hospital rooms. It may be Wall Street when the market crashes. How do you act when every earthly possession you own has just gone up in a market collapse? As a child of God. Can you reflect the light of His glory and offer hope to those who have all of their hope invested in material possessions? You see, we need to recognize the differences. And in the book of Amos, the messages that he gives to the nations surrounding them are that God has His eye on the nations and He will deal with nations. He doesn't turn a blind eye to that. The other message that comes out of these opening chapters as Amos speaks to the nations is that God is the only God in the heavens. You know, there are probably some folks out there who think, well, let's see. Muhammad, Allah is the God and Muhammad is his prophet of these countries. And, and the gods of Hinduism are the gods of these countries. And all these countries don't even have any gods. They claim to be atheists, so they don't have a God. And, and we're Christians and ours is the Christian God of the Bible. No, no, no. There is no God but Jehovah. There is no other God. He is the only God. He rules in the heavens. He sits upon His throne and all the nations are under His sovereignty. Kings rise and fall at His command. Nations prosper and nations fail at His command. And there comes a time in the judgment of nations when God has had enough and He pulls the rug and nothing can preserve that nation because God's day of judgment has come. The nations will answer to God. And I don't know about you, but that gives me great comfort 
it gives me comfort in, in multiple levels. One is, it gives me comfort to know that God is sovereign and sits on the throne of heaven and, and rules over the earth. And the other thing is, it gives me comfort to know that God does not miss anything in terms of abuse or ungodliness or wickedness among people groups. He doesn't miss it. He keeps score. He knows. I was thinking about the history of World War II for some reason as I was preparing this message, and it was on my mind how many of the military leaders of the Allied powers, the United States and so forth, how many military leaders had a sense of divine uh, mandate, a sense of divine mission. Douglas MacArthur in the Pacific Theater believed that God had sent him on a mission. And he was so convinced of his divine anointing for that purpose that he wasn't afraid of anything. Uh, some of the people have tried to negate the stories of him uh, going on to the beach as he returned to the Philippines and the snipers hadn't been cleared, and they said, what kind of nonsense are those stories? That, that man would have been back in safety and shelter until every sniper was rooted out of their nest. No general would go tromping up on the beaches of the Philippines with the enemy still hiding in the bushes. <laughs> MacArthur would. You read his biography. You, you read the historians that... He was, he was a young officer in the earlier war, and he would get on his horse in front, outside in the open, and ride up and down the rows of the troops, encouraging them with bullets flying all around him. He said, they can't hit me. They can't touch me till God's done with me. I have a divine mission. He believed that so strongly when he finally ended up uh, trying to put Japan back together that he defied presidents caused him his career, but that's another story. And I thought to myself, why was it that these people had such a sense of divine mission? And then you read the stories of some of the battles. I wish Herb were here and he could tell you some of the stories. You just look at all that was involved in the Normandy invasion and, and the miracles that occurred to make that happen. Does that mean... That, that those men were truly Christian men of God and we are a most favored nation? It does not. And the fact that there was obviously divine intervention, which gave many of them their sense of mission, does not mean that God was entirely pleased with the countries He used to restore order. It just means he was more displeased with the agenda of Adolf Hitler and his allies and the Axis powers. God, for those who were up close and personal, seeing it firsthand, and our military strategists were among them, they saw things that they could only explain in terms of divine intervention. And yet the reality is, we were not a saintly country, not even then. Our national sin was already plummeting on that slippery slope that we find ourselves in now. We could not sit back and claim to be a Christian nation then any more than we can now because we've gone further away from God in these last 50 years. But the truth is that God had a plan and purpose for history and it did not include Adolf Hitler ruling the world. And God dealt with him. Because he is the one who rules among the nations. And he gives people a, 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 an opportunity. And in that opportunity, there is a limiting factor. And when they have exhausted their opportunity, that day of grace is over. That's Amos' message to the nations. And then he began to specifically prophesy against Israel. And I want you to look at some of these. If you look at chapter 2 of the book of Amos, these are some of the things that God had a problem with Israel over. 
Amos chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three discretions, or three, tra- <laughs> let's try that again. For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. I'll come back to that in a moment. Because they sell the righteous for money, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Do you see what he's saying here? They're slave trading. The northern kingdom is slave trading. And they're buying people into slavery for relatively small sums of money. They are oppressing the poor and making slaves of them. Those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble, taking advantage again of the underprivileged, in order to, and, and also a man and his father resort to the same girl. Now, the word girl in New American Standard Bible uh, is a Hebrew word that probably means uh, prostitute or even temple prostitute. And the imagery here is of women who are somehow serving in the cultic uh, rituals of the northern kingdom. And there's an incestuous kind of thing going on where males in the same family, fathers and sons, are going to the same prostitute. And, and God is like, I'm fed up with this. And he says in verse 8, And on garments taken as pledges... They stretch out beside every altar, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now you say, what in the world is that talking about? Well, in the law of Moses, when it came, when a man was in trouble and needed to borrow money, the law was very specific. Number one, you could not charge excessive interest to your brother. In fact, the, the implication may have been you cannot charge interest to your to your brother, to your fellow Israelite. The other thing was, you had to be careful what you accepted as collateral. You could not take from him his coat as collateral, because he needs it to stay warm. So so they were limited. There were things they could not take as collateral. What the verse is saying is, and and I want you to see this rich northern nation doing well, and they are religious people. They are not acting like pagans. They are going to church. They are going to worship. They are, we we find this all through the book of Amos. God says, your offerings, I'm just sick of them. I'm sick of your music. I'm sick of your songs. I'm just nauseated with your worship rituals. They were not unreligious people. They were religious people. And they claimed to be worshiping Jehovah, even though they were doing it in in unsanctioned ways. So here's what they would do. (laughs) A poor man would need to borrow money. They would take his coat as collateral. Because that's all he had. And they would keep it. And the law of Moses specifically said, if a man does offer you his coat as collateral, I mean, what kind of person takes the coat off their back and gives it as collateral for a loan? Think about it. You know, why don't they go home and get their plasma TV or, or, or bring their car or, or some other, you know, their silver? Why don't they do something? Why don't they give their watch up for collateral? A person who gives his coat for collateral, that's all he's got. He's down to his last penny. And he needs a loan. And they borrow it. He borrows it. They take his coat. And the Old Testament said, if a man offers you his coat as collateral, maybe through some ritual of commitment or whatever, you be sure you give it back to him before night comes. (laughs) Whether you get your money back or not is immaterial. You give him his coat back. And what they would do is they would show up at church in the guy's coat. You see? And on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. They have extra coats and wine 
because they took it from the poor who were in a helpless situation and they're showing up at church napping on the garments. It's figurative language, but you see the point? The rich are going to worship in the wealth that they have accumulated by taking advantage of the people in dire straits. And God is sickened by it. It greatly disturbs Him. In fact, if you'll turn over with me to um, chapter 5 and look in verse 11. Actually, let's start with verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10. They hate Him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor, abhor Him who speaks with integrity. What happens to the person who stands up for truth in this kind of a culture? What happens to them? The gate was where people hung out and and, and talked, you know. We have our different ways of doing that. It may may be the the coffee group at work. It may be the break time at work. It may be, um, you know, in the cafeteria over lunchtime. Uh, There in, in these times, all the cities had gates and and the wise people of the city would kind of hang out in the gate sometime and chat and gossip and talk about the uh, affairs of the city and whatever. And uh, this guy shows up and he speaks um, a word of reproof. He has integrity. He's pointing out the truthfulness of situations and calling to question their, their, the behavior of the city. What do they do? They abhor him who speaks with integrity. They reprove the one who reproves in the gates. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and extract a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, you will not live in them. What's the deal? These people are building big, fine homes for themselves. Think. 4,000, 5,000, 3,000, 6,000 square feet. Think swimming pools. Think uh, whatever. Imagine the big palatial home. And how did they get that? They got it by taking advantage of people who didn't have the opportunity. And in taking advantage of them, uh, they have charged exorbitant rent for their meager dwellings in order to furnish their houses And give themselves mansions. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you will not drink their wine, for I know your transgressions are many, and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate, therefore at such a time the prudent person keeps silent, for it's an evil time. In other words, Amos is saying, the people that are smart have figured out it's better to just keep their mouth shut and turn a blind eye because they can't seem to change the system and the system is set up in such a way to make the rich richer and the poor poorer and that's the goal here. Friends, in in the midst of all of this that I'm talking to you about, God has a beef with Israel. Listen to it. We often think that God's problem with a nation is simply because they don't worship him in the right way that's a problem but God's problem with Israel is not merely her apostasy in spiritual terms God's problem with Israel is that she is behaving socially in a bad way she is taking advantage of the economy in such that the poor are suffering and the downtrodden are being abused. And when you come to court with a case, there's a bribe that's taken to cast the outcome of the case and righteousness and truth does not prevail, but may the best lawyer win. Doesn't that sound to you like the United States? Really? Doesn't it sound to you like the kinds of things God might say about our nation? The reason that we're in the economic crunch that we're in right now 
is because of excessive greed. But be careful about casting the stones at the Wall Street tycoons who figured out brilliant schemes to make millions and billions of dollars. Because you and I at the street level also had brilliant schemes to borrow and borrow and borrow until we were so extended we could not survive. And, and yes, there was a certain kind of taking advantage of going on in that situation by those who were shrewder and more clever and actually knew what they were doing. But as I read Amos' prophecy against Israel, as I look at the way our criminal justice system works today, as I look at the, the reality that many times uh, cases are, are won or lost simply by the, uh, the brilliance and the cleverness of the attorney without a shred of evidence related to the actual truth, as I look at the systems that flourish in our lands, and I, and I look at many, many, many church people who are living and loving the economy, and coming to church, and also trying to worship God and sing songs of praise. Amos has a strong word. You can see why Amaziah wanted to get rid of him, and Jeroboam wanted him him to go home. We don't want your message up here. You're not helping us out. There was only one problem. Amos predicted an earthquake that two years after he was preaching these sermons in Bethel occurred. And it was like God drew a great big underline beneath his prophecy and said, Amos was telling the truth. And, and some scholars believe that that's the reason that he wrote these things down at this time, because perhaps some in Israel were willing to listen. And I want to point out something else here that stands out in this, in this book that's, that's very important for us. Amos was not bringing to Israel a message of revival in the hopes that you can turn around and be spared. Amos was bringing a message about 30 or 40 years before the Assyrians overran Israel. Amos was bringing a message that said, Your fate is sealed. Judgment is coming. There's nothing you can do about it as a country. Now, where do we stand in the midst of that? You've got to apply scriptural contextually. But we need to recognize that although God extends his hand of mercy to individuals who may turn to him at any time, he oftentimes decides the fate of nations and seals their doom, and there is no room for repentance and recovery. In fact, in Israel, he said, judgment will come. The time to turn, look in chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O house of Israel, because I shall do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Prepare to meet your God. And in chapter 8, verses 7 to 11, if you'll just look over the page there. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds, because of this, will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile, and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I shall make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. I will turn your festivals into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it a time of mourning for an only son. That's a reference to Egypt and the Passover. And the end of it will be like a very bitter day. And look back earlier in that chapter 8, verse 4. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may be open, uh, that we may open the wheat market, to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, and to cheat with dishonest scales, so as to buy the helpless for money, 
and the needy for a pair of sandals that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. Do you see what they're doing? Boy, preachers 30, 40 years ago could have had a heyday. Well, they did have a heyday with this passage. We, we were much stricter in our messages in those days. But do you see what he's saying? Here are the religious people. It's a festival. The, the, the shops are closed. They're having a religious festival. And what's on their mind? When is this thing going to be over so I can open the wheat market? I want to go back to work. I want to make some more money. <clears throat> or it's a Sabbath day. They don't want to be at church on the Sabbath, but everything's closed on the Sabbath. You remember some of you the days in this country when all the stores were closed on Sundays? I, I remember that in my childhood. You, you just you didn't go shopping on Sunday because there wasn't anything open. You were fortunate if you could find a pharmacy that would sell you some medicine. Uh, I mean, everything closed down. And this is what they're saying. Uh, and the Sabbath that we can open the wheat market and sell grain. We don't want to be in church. We want to be making money. We're having such a great time. And so, even though they were going through the motions, in their heart, they wanted to be somewhere else. And in order to do that, it says, they were cheating with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money, the needy for a pair of sandals, that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. We want to make the shekel bigger, but we want to make the weight smaller, and we want to cheat people by scrimping on product and expanding profit. We want to do the best we can do to make as much money as possible. And we wish we didn't even have to take time out for church to do that. But we are a religious people. We're Christians. Of course, they weren't saying that. And then they were giving bad product to the poor that couldn't afford the better cuts. And God says... You're finished. I'm done. I'm not here to tell you repent and perhaps I'll be gracious and bring revival. Amos said, I'm here to tell you the Lord has made up His mind. You're going down. And as a nation, you will not rise again. I'm done with you. Your day of opportunity has passed. It was 30 more years or so before the Assyrians came in and took away the tribes of the northern kingdom. But the prophetic doom was certain. Don't misapply that to individuals. Many of you know that I just had a funeral this past week for someone who in the last days of their life made a decision to invite Christ into their heart as Lord and Savior. God is very kind. He's very gracious. And, and for those who turn to Him at whatever moment of their lives, God will receive them. Whosoever will may come. And His heart is open. But there are times when with a nation He says, I'm finished. Your doom is sealed. There's no coming back. Judgment is on the way. There's nothing you can do to change it. So how does all of this apply to us, and where are we? Well, one of the things that we need to recognize from Amos, and really it's throughout the Scriptures, Jesus said, the poor you always have with you. There will always be the poor. Listen, in our country, we have created this image of the welfare person. You know, and we've created this system whereby we assume that, that people on welfare want to be on welfare and they, and they don't want to work and, and they want to take a government handout and all those kinds of things. And you know what? That, there may be a lot of truth to that. But sometimes I think we have a tendency to excuse ourselves by saying, they live in the land of America. There's an opportunity in this land. You can be anything you want to be. Just set your mind to it and you can do it. Friends, that's not true. That's not true. There are people who lack opportunity even though they have a willingness. They still lack opportunity. 
that exists. Jesus made that point. There will always be the poor. Not every country on the face of the planet has been the welfare state that we have become. But every country on the face of the planet in the whole history of the human race has had the poor. Whether or not we cater to laziness in the government dole is our problem. But the reality is that some people are in their circumstances because they have had a catastrophe or they lack opportunity. And God says, when you find those people, my heart is for them. My heart is out for them. I was having a conversation the other evening and uh, we were imagining in our conversation back if the Garden of Eden had never been spoiled. Do you realize there would never be any poor? Do you realize everyone would have everything they needed? Do you realize that God's intention was not that some would, would be powerful and some would be weak and incapable or that uh, all, all this disparity between the classes would exist? God envisioned no such thing. And so we need to recognize that God is very concerned about people who lack opportunity and people who have experienced disaster and people who are in trouble. God has a heart for them. And the nation that ignores them, or even worse, abuses them as a nation, God will mark down in His book. He will not forget. Those countries that take advantage of the poor for basically slave labor in order to produce cheap product so the rich can keep getting stuff. God is paying attention. He's taking notice. You and I may not be able to change our government. We all only have one vote. We not, may not be able to directly influence the president. We may not be able to make national policy. We might not even be able to influence City Hall. But you are responsible as a believer where you are to live as people of salt and light. We are responsible to have compassion. We are responsible to be fair and deal with integrity. Listen, just because a market affords you the opportunity to make an exorbitant profit, you need to be careful your target market. If you're looking to take advantage of the poor out of their need, because they are buying something that is essential to their well-being, in this case, they were charging high rent because they could get away with it. The northern kingdom was filled with slum landlords. And God was not happy with them. We need to recognize that God is a God of social justice. And that every human being on the planet is, in fact, my brother. We all have a common parent. Cain, when God asked him, where is your brother? Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? Why are you asking me? And you know the answer to that question? Yes, you are. In fact, Jesus defined the neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he said, this religious guy walked by, headed to the temple. And this Levi walked by, headed to the temple. And here's this poor man on the side of the road, and they didn't want to ceremonially soil themselves so they couldn't do their, their temple duties. And then to just kind of put it right between the teeth of the Jews listening to him, because they despised the Samaritans as a, as a half-breed race that were, uh, were a thorn in their side. He said, along came a Samaritan. And the Jews went, Bleh! And along came a Samaritan. And he bathed his wounds. And he bandaged him up. And he took him to a nice motel. And he paid the bill. And he gave him a place to stay so he could recover. That man is your neighbor and that's what I mean when I say love your neighbor 
the way you love yourself. What would you want to be done for you? It's a simple question. Any human being on the planet deserves the same. God is a God of social justice. We need to keep that in our minds. And we need to recognize that even if we can't sway national policy or even local policy, that we are responsible for our own actions. And we have to make moral and ethical judgments. Just because something is legal to do, just because it can be done, just because there's a loophole in the law to make it happen, doesn't mean it's right. And we have a responsibility to act ethically and morally. Secondly, God will hold and enlighten people more responsible. Israel had received the personal revelation of God in his law, and she was without excuse. Listen, friends, make no mistake. The United States, despite the effort to rewrite the history books, was nonetheless still founded principally on a desire to have freedom to worship God as people chose. And throughout the history of this nation, it has been the godly people whom God has blessed that, it has, that has made it great. And you can look at that in, as you look at the history of the United States within uh, 150 to 200 years from the Declaration of Independence. We were the greatest mission-sending country on the face of the planet. We have sent more missionaries to more places than any other country. That has been our heritage. Don't think that in relative terms, God has not withheld His hand of judgment because there were godly people in this land on mission with God to, pre to present the gospel around the world. But that is no longer the case. There are other nations of the world that are beginning to show prominence in the, in the arena of world mission. And now when we come to the table in, in world mission conferences, we find that it is not just Americans who are sitting there, but the table is growing with people from South America and South Korea and other countries of the world that are having a powerful influence in world mission. Do not think that God will ignore the fact that we have been an enlightened country. You can still turn on the radio any day of the week and hear a gospel message. You can turn on the television and find some channel where the gospel is being preached. Don't think that that is going to go by the by as if God was not aware that of all the peoples on the face of the planet in, in the current days, the United States has probably had more opportunity to follow the truth. But, are we taking it? Don't think that God will not move on in history to other lands. Then one of the greatest judgments in the book of Amos against the nation is God withholding His Word. I want you to look at that in Amos chapter 8, verses 11 to 13. I'm just about done here, but this is a, and I put this down as a key verse, actually. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And people will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. God says to the northern kingdom, I am going to bring you a famine. They wanted to run Amos out of town. And basically what Amos said is, You know what? That's going to happen one day. There won't be any more prophets. There won't be any more word from God. I am going to shut up and stop talking because you've stopped listening. And there will be a famine in the land for the word of God. Many people quote the verse from Proverbs, without a vision the people perish, and, and they try to build that into a nice business plan. 
you know, if we have a vision, if we can crystallize our vision and develop our strategy and goals and objectives, we can reach this goal and make this accomplishment or whatever. Uh, unfortunately, that's a misunderstanding of the passage because the word actually says, without a revelation from God, the people perish or languish for a lack of guidance. Paul put it this way to Timothy. He said, in the last days, people, he was talking about the church, people will accumulate for themselves teachers who will say what they want to hear. And do we see that in our land today? How many people can you find on the radio and TV who are proclaiming the so-called gospel, are preaching a message that people want to hear, that make them feel good and bolster their spirits? I can go out and and I can make millions. I can go out and and I can accomplish this and I can accomplish that. God's going to help me uh, make my fortune. God's going to bless my life. I love to hear that stuff. Preach it to me. Preach it to me. And friends, we need to wake up to the realization that it is not about me. We act as if God is existing in the heavens just so He can give me a charmed life. We have not graduated very far from Santa Claus. We want to climb up on His lap at prayer time and say, Daddy, I want this, I want this, I want this. Will you give it to me, please? Like I was the only one that mattered. I'm not suggesting for a heartbeat that God doesn't have His heart set on you, that He's not interested in you. But listen to this. God's heart is toward the person whose heart is toward Him. And that's not a get-rich-quick scheme, because when you understand the vision and the goals and the perspective of God, and you have His mission on your heart, it's a whole different thing. Friends, there's a judgment coming. The end time is coming. There's going to come a time when people don't have a chance to turn to God. There will come a judgment. We have a message. You want mansions. You want beds of ease. You want a charmed life. That's called heaven. We already have it. Right now we have work to do. Work for the night is coming when man's work is done. Right now we have a mission. We have a duty. We have to be light and salt in a world that has gone godless. We need to be out there proclaiming the message of salvation. We need to be speaking the truth. We need to call people to repentance. We need to open their eyes to the love of God through Jesus Christ. We need them to know that there will come a judgment. But after that day of death, though disappointed unto man wants to die, then comes the judgment and it's too late. God doesn't exist just so He can give me everything I want. He is God in the heavens. He sets the terms. He has given me the hope of life eternal. And then He has said in essence, I'm going to leave you here a while. Will you take this message to everyone who will hear, regardless of what it costs you? Will you be my witness in the hospital, in the storm, in the tumult, in the bankruptcy, in the financial disaster, in the catastrophe? Will you be my witness? Will you reflect the the heart of Jesus Christ? Even if you fall under the general judgment of a people group, Will you stand out among them as a shining light and a beacon with poise and grace and trust in God? Because I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is the God of all the nations. Everyone will answer to Him. We have a responsibility to live for Him in these days. In a way that will bring as many as possible into the harvest of eternity. Friends, I don't think it's going to be a Mercedes, but just do do the, the analogy with me for a minute. The day for Easy Street is heaven, where we walk on gold because it has so little intrinsic worth. 
and we worship the ever-present Jesus Christ face to face, and we're together, and that's our easy street. It's in the future. Right now, we have a divine mandate, and we need to be careful that we don't buy into the world system, but that we do call people to faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would bless your word to us this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes to see that we would not be lulled into the thinking of the people around us that are just out to get all they can. When they don't think they've got enough, they're jealous and envious. When they think they've got more than they need, they hold on to it lest they should ever have a need in the future. Their hearts of compassion are closed up. And they're living entirely for themselves. And yet you love them. And you love us. You have called us out of darkness into light. You have called us to bear the message glorious of Jesus Christ. You have called us to model kingdom ethics, kingdom morality, kingdom economics. You have called us to be salt and light. May we be faithful to shine the light of Christ in a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.